So here's my question for you, Dr. Kuntz. What good is information? <laughs> uh, sometimes it could be very bad. Information is only good if it turns out to be useful. And I don't say that in a utilitarian way, like I only want information on stock prices if I have investments. I only want information on car wash prices if I need my car washed because that doesn't answer the question of why you would want your car washed or why you would be investing in the first place. But by useful, I mean that it somehow contributes to what probably gets called usually wisdom rather than mere knowledge or information. And everyone recognizes that you can possess lots of information on a topic or lots of knowledge on something, but wisdom will usually result not only in a certain increase in knowledge about this or that topic, investment, best car wash in town or whatever, wisdom will also result in a change in you as a person for the better in some way. So information can be really useful and is probably actually foundational for wisdom. Right, right. So distinguishing between knowledge and wisdom is really valuable there. Bringing those two terms into the conversation and recognizing that information is a more meta term, I think now, is that, did I use that word rightly? Or is it just, it is come to replace it in the zeitgeist. We don't talk about knowledge or wisdom. We talk about information. And even though Peter Drucker, who's the one that got me thinking about this, a business thinker and a church growth thinker, he, he still used the word knowledge though, the knowledge worker. So I was pondering what it means to be a knowledge worker, what is information, especially in the information age where increasingly I think it's mostly lies and this hopefully almost a dovetail into two episodes on domestic terrorism, because why not? <laughs> it is a brief history of power too, white guys. I'm Pastor Jonathan Fisk, and I already introduced Dr. Adam Kuntz. You can reach him for all the complaints at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort right. Indiana. So, <laughs> Please send them to will. my boss. Yeah. I don't, I don't yeah. know if what I started us with really connects, but I think it does, and it, it goes with our longer story here. Uh, right. I keep asking, what good is it after these, after these shows? Not... Not in a, a cynical way, but like, right. so now that I've heard this, what do I do, right? Right. And so right. what good is information? Uh, what good is the knowledge that we have to work with? And it, uh, how do you learn to find it within the story in which things are getting changed on you so fast, I think, which is right. what we're getting into now. And the stuff that we're going to be doing over the next, I'm just going to say several weeks, because sometimes I find that there's just so much for what I thought was going to be a week, it's going to be two or three over the next several weeks are things that I think have much deeper roots than people realize. And because the news cycle relies on a very, very short attention span, you are not going to get nearly as much wisdom from that as you will from looking into history because history just gives you a different sense, both of where things come from, but also of what possibilities are there. Wisdom is long form. Right. Wisdom is always long form because it requires long form, both knowledge of other things, but also knowledge of oneself and knowledge of oneself and of one's weaknesses or proclivities or whatever it might be. Knowledge of oneself is actually is non-negotiable for acquiring wisdom. A Peter Drucker book, actually, I mean, coincidentally, I was just listening to a Peter Drucker audio book before I got which one, which one? Uh, managing oneself. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. And he makes the point over and over again, that if you don't know yourself, you can't be expected to, in his case, manage anyone else. But I would say really accomplish things that are worthwhile because worthwhile things generally require somebody else. So it's not just what do I know, but how am I able to communicate it to somebody else? Or how am I able to inspire something in somebody else or whatever it might be? So as we look at a phrase that is really going to be ramped up called domestic terrorism, we have to remember a lot of things about the past that will enable us to see that in a way that hopefully will enable us to be wise in the days to come. And the reason I'm pretty sure it's going to be ramped up is not just because if you search for the phrase on uh, that the little tool Google has, Ngram, uh, for finding out frequencies of phrases. So look up the phrase white supremacy and see how it spikes from Obama's reelection onward. Look up the phrase pro-choice, right? And see if anyone was saying pro-choice in 1941. You'll see that domestic terrorism has spiked a lot recently. But also a really kind of odd thing that got me thinking about this in the first place is that 
if you remember the Trump administration, feels like a long time ago. <laughs> it's like a whole other universe, man. It was a whole different universe, right? Trump was able to, re you know, remember things when he would speak in public, for example. If you remember the Trump administration, you know that there was always sort of a carousel in most of the official positions. One of the really unusual things about the last month and a half of the Trump administration was that Trump, after the media had called the election, now we were there for that, we remember how that was all up in the air, but the media had called the election. Trump fired a bunch of people in the defense department and appointed a guy, Chris Miller, who was confirmed by the Senate, not as, as an acting secretary, because that doesn't require confirmation. And that, that's how Trump was kind of piecing things together with, you know, shoestrings with a lot of acting secretaries of this and that. Mm. Miller became a permanent secretary of defense. And that was, that was just kind of strange. Miller also somewhat less strangely is an example of somebody who has migrated over the course of his career out of analyzing Arab or Muslim terrorism into analyzing domestic terrorism. So the apparatus that was that <laughs> apparatus that bloomed, I guess you might say, mm. uh, increased exponentially in the early 2000s with the 9-11 uh, terror attacks. It looks like increasingly that apparatus is going to be turned on Americans. American. Yeah, American population. And technically that has already happened under Obama, right? Under, Ob under Obama, but what I think you'll find as we go through some of this stuff, st I'm going to start with the Civil War. I could have started earlier. I'm starting with the Civil War for ease of reference, is that this has happened before in American history. Technological capabilities were not the same, but some of the political circumstances were in fact the same. And you can see some of why this happens, how this has happened, and why and how this can actually go away. That is, the government can turn its full force on you in a given time and place. And that may or may, or may not extinguish your group at that time. And if, But if it doesn't, that heat can actually be taken off. And so we're looking at this not really from a moral standpoint. I'm not so much interested in today, like, was the government right to train its force on someone at a given time or place? Do I agree with those people who were designated as terrorists or insurrectionists in that time or place? It's really more about just the pure power dynamics and whether or not people survive that we're interested in. Well, so being a brief history of power with two white guys, the reason we started this conversation is because we grew up in a world where I think our culture believed that we had solved the race issue and that we were on right. the way to better times. Yeah. And now finding that that's not the case and wait, I'm the bad guy, that's <laughs> that's tough to reckon with. So we're trying to figure out, again, how to be the best neighbors we can in a world that seems to hate us a lot more than we realized. And right. I can't say for bad reasons sometimes if I'm talking about America, honestly. Uh, I've traveled overseas and seen what fools we be um, as we travel. Uh, but that being said... I the revisiting of the crimes of you know generations prior upon ethnicities in the present is is a glorious history in world history and one i just as soon stave off with common sense and some conversation on a podcast yeah. if i can yeah <laughs> yeah that would be preferable to the alternative so then start us in here right uh we got some adjectives we got to worry about yeah and it's domestic terrorism is really re relies for its force of accusation on the noun, not the adjective. So understand that, that nouns, and th this is kind of like, I wish they still taught sentence diagramming reliably. Amen. Nouns and verbs are what are driving what someone is actually saying. Yep. The adjectives, the adverbs in a sentence diagram are going to kind of dangle off or dangle above what's actually being asserted. So in the phrase domestic terrorism, like in the phrase trans women, they are relying for your assent on the noun and then whatever verb. So if I say trans women are women, now somebody's going to isolate that audio 
and then attach it to my voice, whatever. That's fine. Right, right. If right. I say trans women. Deepfake time, man. Deepfake is getting <laughs> more right. popular and it's not just porn anymore. I mean, really. That's, there you go. Beware. So if I, if I say trans women are women, the, the force and what's supposed to sound obvious about that is really not the adjective. The adjective is where I'm sneaking in a bunch of assertions and presuppositions like biology is, is basically unreal and does not matter. Everything's a social construct. But it's supposed to sound obvious because the nouns are women and women. <laughs> so the subject and the predicate are the same word and the verb is are. It's a very strong claim, but what I'm actually asserting is hidden there in that adjective trans. Similarly with domestic terrorism, people don't necessarily know. It might be hard to give a definition of terrorism if you just demanded of it of someone, but they have a general sense of unjust violence, especially upon civilians. Sure, yeah. Visited at any time in any place. That's what's so scary about it. And that's also why the accusation that terrorism is coming either from Muslims or white males who own guns or whatever, that accusation is so politically powerful because what I'm engaging when I say that something is terrorism is really, if I'm the person who's supposed to protect you, I'm really engaging a lot of things inside your mind that are very deep and don't really deserve analysis. I'm really, it's sort of like crying fire Yep, in a crowded theater. That's, that's about right. Wolf would be another you know, parable. Right. And so if I say that over and over and over again, like you said, with crying wolf, some people are going to become inured to it. They're going to become used to it and they're not going to listen to me anymore. But lots of people will remain sufficiently afraid and lacking in analytical capacity. And they will hear terrorism over and over again and believe it every time. Yeah. Now, let me point out just for the philosophers here that that would, in fact, be domestic terrorism to make the populace <laughs> live in that scenario constantly. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's uh, the death. Yeah. I, I think I think that if if any form of civilization survives that is able to read uh, modern American English, you know, has access to the documents and they look back at us, they will recognize just how very skilled our priestly class that is really our media hmm. and educational apparatus just how good our priestly class was at doing the very thing that they are saying they condemn yeah yeah so that that adjective domestic in terrorism is something that you should realize is there's an alternative there that they could have chosen that they in fact do choose when it is in our regime's interest to further what in the United States would be called domestic terrorism. So if something that in the United States would be called domestic terrorism, like firing on a federal agent, okay, which is something we're going to see has happened many times for all kinds of reasons in America, something that would be called domestic terrorism is called in the case of like Syria, if someone is trying to do it to Bashar al-Assad's army, that is the army of the official government of Syria. In the case of Syria, we call those rebels or freedom fighters, or in a most Orwellian phrase, moderate rebels, as if they're rebelling in a moderate fashion, which I don't know how to do that. Mostly peaceful protests do happen from time to time. <laughs> right, right. Or peaceful, mostly peaceful protesters like, all right, well, what percentages are we talking mm. here? So they could have said, civil unrest yeah right or mostly peaceful protest but instead the general term of art is domestic terrorism but you also get nouns especially connected to january 6th of this year like insurrectionist or rebellion hmm. and those are terms that the, that the regime generally has not used for native-born americans with certain convictions about an election since the time of what we call not our domestic war, and we don't any longer call it the war of the rebellion, but since our civil war. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Keep going. So the, the the I like the domestic war. I think that sounds more fun. Yeah, the, the, the domestic war is, you know, that's not an adjective that we used, 
but domestic terrorism is an adjective that it, it, that domestic is a really useful adjective because it 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 gives you sort of a realm to keep in mind like okay this is something that could happen like in new york or in oklahoma but it doesn't give you a sense of why the person would be doing it as in the phrase moderate rebel nor does it give you a sense that this person actually has certain rights that belong to every american citizen yeah, they're not even people they're not even people. They're not they're even, characters in a they're show ju they're just terrorists uh, they're characters in a show yeah. i'm gonna go i'm gonna go one better and say this entire thing uh shakespeare world's a stage we're all actors it's a myth it's a story and whoever's telling the best show wins and if they can keep you believing these moderate rebels over there really don't have anything that they're mad about they're just weirdos well you're not going to do anything about it you're not going to think yourself you're not going to uh, consider your own problems again yeah. speaking of our own problems i mean what is the realistic chances that what you and i are doing right now constitutes domestic terror at the moment according to the regime how close are we to this line I think we're over the line. I think that's pretty obvious in the sense that the things that we're saying are not kosher. They're, they're, I mean, they're notably not kosher, such that if somebody picked up this podcast on national news. If they wanted to I, dox us, if they wanted to dox us, we would get yeah. destroyed. We would get yeah, totally, totally destroyed right, right now. Both yeah, of us. Right, right. We're unprepared. Right, right. And so I, I think that what you're dealing with with our regime is not so much a question of what is right or wrong because they really don't rely on some sort of hard and fast standard the regime relies on compliant passivity and fear not some sort of objective standard that is either crossed or not crossed people have a general sense of what might be right or wrong but the regime and the, you know this is how like executive orders work right think about that you have multiple branches of government an executive order or sort of a, a screaming demand works on the basis of your compliance it doesn't work on the basis of force of law hmm. that's why it's both easier to repeal legally but also seems almost insurmountable or unprecedented i mean in my state right now the legislature which is overwhelmingly republican as indiana is is debating and has already sort of walked back its own resolution to curtail the reliably Republican governor's prerogatives because our governor is not exactly sort of a, you know, a Texas type. He's more of a chamber of commerce Republican. The point of that is that a lot of how not only our government, but even more than that, our media and our educational system function, the way that our culture, let's say, functions is not through promulgation of objective rights or wrongs because those things change rapidly, right? And we've, we've talked about that in many cases, both political things, but also, you know, like eventually you're going to have to say that pedophilia is okay. You're going to have to say that. To if you don't say the, that. To be part of the priestly caste. Yeah, yeah. And if you land. think that's absurd, I mean, I don't Go think look it, at American no. political discourse 20 years ago. We were still debating whether or not homosexuality was permissible legally. It was still illegal in the state of Texas until Lawrence v. Texas. Yeah, but that was way behind the culture, though, too, in terms of <laughs> and we've been talking about this being a California thing from the beginning and that it's really been about that spirit moving across the country. And now it's just finally kind of taking the reins uh, from everything. Keep going with what you're going. I don't want to distract yeah. us. So I, I, I think that what our culture relies upon is a is a is a certain form of compliant passivity, which is fed by myths, not only on the left, but also much closer to home for probably all or most of our listeners also on the right, because the idea that something is constitutional or unconstitutional doesn't even capture like we've said before, the political culture of the founding of our nation. Our nation exists as such, and even the, the really abstract notion that America is about liberty in a good way, okay? I'm not sort of memeing or making fun of America in this specific case, but that our culture is about liberty involves the assertion of one's liberties. That is the capacity to judge, to analyze, to be wise, and then to take wise action in defense of something that is more important to you than the approval of the king, for instance. So what our system relies upon, even on the right, is the idea that somehow, even if one does not assert his liberties or does not reserve the right to judge the actions of executives, even if you just 
let executives walk all over elected legislatures. Somehow still, because something is in accord with, according to some judge's interpretation, something that's on paper. That is, if the priestly class has decided that trans women are women, for instance, then everything will be okay because it will be constitutional. And I think that the, that basic sense of control through passivity, which is ensured differently on the left than on the right. I mean, the left, the left usually puts up a bigger stink about like a minimum wage or $2,000 should be paid out or something. And usually their elected representatives go along with their own bases desires during election season more than the rights do. But really once they're in power, things still function according to the regime's desires, which involves, you know, the minimum wage federally is not gonna go up to 15 at least for a long time. And uh, the right never gets what it wants either. And all of that I'm saying relies upon this sort of compliant passivity, which lets you be talked to and then you just go along with what is said. Yeah, not through justice, but through prophecy. Yeah. <laughs> and by asserting that it will be, and then if we all do it, it will be. Yeah, and, right, exactly. Uh, yeah, it's prophecy. Right. It's prophecy. Uh, whether it's false or true, right? That's the spirit of it. It's what, that's yeah. what's going on. Yeah. Um, so prophecy and fighting over you know, minimum wage was probably not the domestic terrorist's main concern in the Civil War. So <laughs> what were the domestic no. terrorists leading to the Civil War and then in the Civil War, and then during de Reconstruction, yeah. um, it, it was it strictly slavery. My guess is probably not. No, um, but, no, it wasn't. Know, and, and, a lot of, and a lot of things are kind of forgotten about this because you get this sort of analysis of everything in terms of the Holocaust, and then like who liberated what concentration camps, and then also every human conflict is analyzed in that way. This is this is our sort of post Nuremberg trial world order. So you for, it is totally forgotten that the terrorism, I mean, just raids on civilians, attacks on civilians by both sides in Kansas prior to the civil war, which was about whether Kansas would enter the union as a slave state or a free state. And that had to do with sort of classic American political mixture of boosterism gun running and immigration, either from New England to ensure that it would be a free state or from Missouri, which was largely a Southern state, not only culturally, but also demographically at the time. So this is all about buying votes then still at that point, right? It's about, yeah, it's about making sure that the right people are voting at the right time. And elections have never exactly everywhere on election day in America been free and fair right but, right you know, so again totally yeah, honest. back to the terrorism like living in an age of terrorism who's causing the terror and where and it seems to be it's whoever's trying to get the right vote accomplished with all the powers that be uh, right. it's a different kind of war it's yeah. an information war i don't think i was off base entirely on my opening question uh so reconstruction uh during the civil war uh, other examples or we get through all the kind yeah. of examples i'm curious how that were the same parties that were doing these kinds of tactics before, after, and during Civil War? Yeah, so something something does change between the 1850s and the 1870s, and Reconstruction sort of officially comes to an end in 1877 as a result of that compromise made with Southern Democrats that we talked about back when we talked about the Electoral Count Act and how the Electoral College functions. That was fun. In that 20-year period, one big thing that changes is that the folks who are shipping uh, rifles to Kansas, uh, the Yankees who are shipping rifles to Kansas, which are called Beecher's Bibles for a popular preacher who wanted to make sure that abolitionism would prevail in Kansas. Can't, Those can't folks say are, he was wrong on that, that count then. We're fine with, that, with abolition. I think one thing that, that changes is the nature of the demands about how the country is going to be run in an ideologically unified way. Yeah. So what I'm saying is when groups that don't agree with each other actually have to live next to each other, either in Kansas in the 1850s or a lot of the, what we would describe maybe as terroristic violence during the Civil War happens in border places, hmm. Missouri, uh, Kentucky, West Virginia. This is, civilians tend to suffer most during the Civil War where civilians could go either way ideologically. 
So in places that are ideologically unified, like Vermont, or what was then called Indian Territory, which was uniformly pro-Confederate, and the, the, quote, five civilized tribes that had been deported there during the 1830s and 40s, they were totally pro-Confederate. You know, this is, that's lost American hey, that's, history. That's fascinating. Dances with wolves or something. <laughs> you know, they were slaveholding, et cetera. Those places, if they're ideologically unified, you're going to have less suffering because the population is not suspicious of each other and troops cannot come through and raid and rely on some amount right, of goodwill right, from right, the local right. populace. That's where I call myth and foul on the, uh, the great terrorism of white black and the idea that somehow there is something we have to fear from each other. And that is something that's escalated, as you pointed out, even in this episode already yeah. in just the last 15 years. And yeah. That's what makes it scary is that it's like they're trying to draw lines and shove people behind them so we'll shoot each other in the corners so they can keep preaching. Ah, again. I yeah, I think I, I, I okay, I think one one way in which that dynamic of continuous conflict, especially in border places, that amps up in the South after the Civil War. Because something there there are kind of two things to know about Reconstruction that usually are no longer discussed. One is the the program is largely run after Lincoln's assassination. The program for the federal government, which is ruling over the former Confederate states after the Civil War, is largely run by what are called radical Republicans. So these are folks who in the 1850s are funding, let's just say in a in a in a as neutral as I can be, they're funding violent groups in places like Kansas to ensure Northern supremacy over Southern sentiment in places where Northerners and Southerners have to live together. Yeah. Sometimes violent groups making sure that there wasn't more violence by being violent when they needed to be. It's like the mafia. Well, no, I would, I, no? I'm actually going to say man? that in this, okay, in, good, this good. in this, in this, because they, they were were treating even things like congregational churches, which are reliably kind of ethnically Yankee, geographically Northern descended people. Congregationalist churches become something like organizing centers for violence against Southerners in the case that Southerners become electorally problematic oh, wow. in a place like Kansas. So, and I'm not saying that none of that came from Southerners, but what is significant is that People who were politically fairly fringe in 1854 are by 1868 politically very, very important, not only in the North, not only in a place like Vermont, but in the federal government. You made me think and, of AOC and that, that I don't like that thought. Yeah. So so what you're dealing with is that radicalization and a certain attitude toward other people groups, in this case, after the Civil War, of the people group of white Northerners uh, over against the people group of white Southerners. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. When those things happen, when that radicalization happens, what, what seems to change over time is not only redefinition of who is a terrorist, who is an existential threat to the regime, but also what changes, and I think more importantly changes, is the regime's willingness to just sort of efface entire people groups. And this could be despite what they say. Okay, so one thing that is often forgotten about Reconstruction and is sort of a mystery, whether you read Dunning, who is sort of anti-Reconstruction, and that's kind of an archive.org book, that's an old book, or you read Eric Foner, F-O-N-E-R, who's very pro-Reconstruction, and that's kind of standard for academic history at this point. No matter who you read, you're going to find out that based on censuses before the Civil War, and then compare that to censuses taken in the South after the Civil War, hundred, at least hundreds of thousands of Black people just aren't even there later on. And since we have no record of, you know, sort of mass casualty events of Black slaves in the South during the Civil War, in fact, you have enlistment of slaves in the Confederate Army, mm. for instance, and then also in places like Louisiana or South Carolina that are conquered by the North early on, you have enlistment by Southern Blacks in you know, Union forces. 
there are at least hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people missing. Okay. So, so I'm going to try to draw all these pieces together and ask a question. Yeah. So are you suggesting that during reconstruction, there's potential that the North solved the so-called three-fifths compromise problem of the South having too many voices by exterminating voices based upon lack of rights at the time? Is that, is that the idea? No, I'm saying that the Good. very people who were supposed to be the object of the greatest concern of what are what were called and and I mean this is their own term oh, radical Republicans. The 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 group for whom they were doing this all. And and radical Republicans are really the to in in my reading the only people at the time of the Civil War who said the Civil War is about emancipating right, the slaves. Right. So what you're saying is that the, um, as opposed to it being a malicious thing, it was incompetence. That those who were the most zealous that we're going to go down here and fix yeah. this, they in fact presided over one of the yeah. most collapsing uh, probably human health uh, crises yeah. in history. Right? Yeah, yeah. You're taking, you're taking, you're trying to move people from one long-standing economic system into a completely different one, and like the process of collectivization in the Soviet Union. Lots and lots of people are going to die. I never thought about this. So you take away the plantation, everyone just starves. They just well, starve. Yeah, be, well, because <laughs> I mean, think about Come it. You're on. moving. You're moving from the the whole economy functions as basically mono selective monoculture based on exports and trade. To okay, now everybody sort of has to be a subsistence farmer. What do we grow? Where do we get the seed? How do we pay for do it? Do you know Who how to do it? I mean, yeah. yeah do you know right. how to do it? Golly. Right. right. So when you think about, I mean, economic collapse has also things like medical ramifications because of malnutrition, et cetera. So that's why these numbers of Black Southerners are mysterious because if I can't locate some sort of, if I can't have some sort of blood libel, well, they, they were just, they were just all killed by somebody because nobody's saying that then I'm dealing with something that is sort of more mysterious and horrifying because it means that even the people who were in charge of helping them and who founded institutions like the Freedmen's Bureau, right. Couldn't actually weren't able yeah. i mean not even to say that they weren't willing but they weren't even able to save thousands and thousands of people from death okay yeah. not just surviving but from death no one's so, coming it's up to us no yeah one's no coming, one is to gonna us. help you even if they say they're gonna help you mm. and even if they demonize people whom you hate hmm. you probably still aren't gonna be helped you're still gonna be digging for harlem coal to the bottom of your grave uh, they're not really here to help. Was it the government says I'm here to help? They never do something like that. <laughs> so can so, you push? I mean, can you push us up to the Pomerades, or do you want to say more before we go to that? Yeah, because that's that's kind of one thing. The other thing to to recall that, like I'm saying, any honest historian is going to recall. Besides massive demographic changes in the South, the other thing to recall is that the thing that we tried to do, that the North tried to do to the South is the thing that we agreed not to do after 1877, which was to politically disenfranchise the vast majority of the South. That is, if you had fought against the United States in any regard or supported those who did, the major ideological movement was to say, you will now have no political role, right. not even in local or state governance ever going forward. And one way to note this is just very simply looking at the nouns that were used at the time versus now. So even now, and even with the retelling, I think, read through a very radical Republican lens, capital R, capital R, that, you know, it's all about slavery and it's morally extremely clear and that's what everyone was doing. And this is about defeating white supremacy, blah, 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 blah. Even read through that lens, usually our textbooks still call what happened the Civil War implying that brother was fighting brother. Mm -hmm. If you look back at even public documents, like uh, if you're a genealogist and you want to find out if somebody f that was your ancestor that lived in Wisconsin fought in the Civil War, the record will probably be called, you know, something like list of soldiers who fought in the War of the Rebellion. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's a very different term because that's a much more clear right and wrong you went against legitimate authority and you lost. 
So the idea that it's a civil war indicates that the person who lost is still a brother. He's still in the civitas. He's still a citizen. He can be restored. Between 1865 and 1877, that's totally up in the air. Mm -hmm. And there are attempts that are more or less successful in different Southern states to totally or partially disenfranchise anyone, not just leaders, but anyone who took up arms. And if you have, if you're not, let's say over 40 or 50, if you just ask your parents or your grandparents how they learned about say Robert E. Lee in school, you'll find remnants of this sort of American consensus that said we fought over this thing, but we're all Americans. Mm -hmm. Right. In that Robert E. Lee was taught as a losing general of a side that was wrong on this or that ground. And if you're a Southerner and you disagree, that's, that's fine. That's not really what I'm saying. But he was a good general and he was a good man. That's mm -hmm. sort of how it was taught. Right, right. Right. So understand that with that consensus that Robert E. Lee was an American also goes a consensus that anyone who was on the wrong side of anything. And this is why it's really not coincidental that once Confederate statues keep coming down and see the, the reason that Confederate statues went up was because it was OK to remember those people mm -hmm. because they were also Americans. And so their suffering was something that could be remembered by their descendants. It's not coincidental that once those things come down, the people who were part of that consensus that we're all Americans, this was a civil war, their statues also come down. So I think most sort of egregiously and poignantly, a statue of a Norwegian immigrant unionist in Wisconsin. <laughs> Okay, who obviously never owned slaves, whose English was his second language, that came down this summer too in Wisconsin. And it's not really coincidental because he's part of that demonized, you know, kind of white male class. But it's also it's poignant because it shows you that once one person or group is designated as domestic terrorists, everyone is potentially in danger of being so designated sometime in the future. Because mm -hmm. the availability of the designation is there. You need a scapegoat, right? You and do. This is yeah. old politics, I think. So again, what we're trying to figure out then is how do we live in a world where our demographic is the scapegoat for 10 to 20 years? How do we do that as Christians don't really want to rise up in arms to try to like overthrow something? It's not kind of the goal yeah. here. Right. Um, and if that's your goal, you know, it's not really our goal here. Uh, the goal, I, I'll say it the way I say it in my parish is you come in with a gun. I'll be trained enough that you can know I can shoot at you, but I'm also not going to shoot at you. And I'm going to tell you I'm not shooting at you. I'm going to come talk to you. I'm going to talk you out of shooting me. We'll figure it out. We can do that. It's It's possible. Right now, I may die doing that someday. That's fine. That's fine. Right. I, I've reckoned with that, too. But I think that that's a that's a better alternative to what I feel blowing in the wind around me, yeah. which is that that if you are white, if you are a man, you need to find a way to get involved in the compound and take up arms someday kind of thing or get ready for when they come and get you. Make sure you have your stash. Right. And I just don't think that's reasonable. I don't think the wind is blowing that hard yet. Or maybe maybe again, like you mentioned with the Amish fathers, I've been pondering them quite a bit recently. Yeah. Maybe it's just going to take a couple of us sitting in jail for a while. Maybe yeah. it's all it's going to be. And okay, yeah, jail sucks. It'll it'll bring scars. Again, I, I'm going to try to convert them. So they're going to think I'm nuts. I, I kind of want, I don't want to go to jail. If I go to jail, I, I got a plan. And the plan is that they will either kill me or they will start protecting me. And it'll because, be because what I say, right? I talk them into it yeah. or not. And that that's on me. Yeah. But that's coming out of, again, fathers being willing to stand where they are knowing times are going to be tougher than they ever wanted them to be potentially but not forever and that means don't go out in a blaze of glory like a like a young fool like a young fool yeah. does, that, does that sound right yeah it does because what we're kind of shifting into for what remains for this week and then going into next week when we get closer to the present with the 80s the 90s and the early 2000s what we're shifting into is the left and the left's history with things that are pretty clearly terroristic, but generally people don't know anything about. And I think that's really, really significant. Like Antifa? 
No, not exactly. Because the things that most people don't know about involve movements that are more or less obscure, but are part of the various coalitions that the left will put together um, in different times or places. So the first example of that are the generally foreign born and therefore deportable anarchists and communists, like quite literally, I'm not saying that hyperbolically, anarchists and communists who are deported right after the First World War in what is often called by leftists, the first Red Scare, mm -hmm. right? Distinguishing it from the McCarthy era of the late 40s, early 50s, which is the second Red Scare. That first Red Scare is something that you'll get really passing cultural references to. The only place that I've ever seen in my admittedly very limited sample size is the beginning of the show Boardwalk Empire. Oh, interesting. Where they, they show you the Palmer raids. And they do that partly because this was a really big deal in the Northeast because the Northeast had the highest percentage of foreign-born population <laughs> in the very early 1920s. And what they're showing you are what are apparently, if I remember it correctly, the, the episode, unjust attacks on people who are just exercising rights to free speech. Some of the things that they're not showing you are the histories of after the Civil War in our large cities, New York, Chicago, et cetera, the amount of labor unrest, usually run through labor, but not always tied to labor. They're also not showing you the assassinations of either President James Garfield or of President William McKinley by people on the left, disgruntled, sometimes foreign-born in the case of Cholgash, disgruntled with the American way of life and the way that American government functions and the fact that it was insufficiently leftist. They don't show you any of that. They just show you people being taken away and people being stopped from speaking publicly, right? So this is, the left has in some ways dug its own grave because it convinced us since the 60s that free speech was an absolute good. And now that it wants to suppress free speech, you know, it some did. people it's remember. In the water. Yeah, it's, it is yeah. in the water, though. I don't think anyone's going to give it up in their house anytime soon. Right. Um, Destiny of the Republic. Great uh, work on uh, Garfield's assassination. The guy who killed him was Bonafide Looney. Looney. Yeah. But he could have been saved if the medical establishment of America at the time had paid attention to what everyone else in the world was doing with uh, antiseptic. And they didn't. Hmm. That's largely yeah. what killed him. Fascinating. Fascinating work. Uh, Destiny of the Republic. But uh, so from there, Palmerade. Just again, another example of similar things in our history, Red Scares right. connected to that. Why don't you go ahead and do a little overview, though, of the second Red Scare? Because McCarthyism is like the ghost that gets trotted out to like shut you up from being afraid of communism. Yeah. So if if you look at Boardwalk Empire, you're going to see the same thing in that. I think it's just the first episode that you get as a sort of cultural meme, some sort of remnant concerning the McCarthy era, which is unjust accusation, especially of unconventional or foreign born or creative people. Hmm. You don't ever get any explanation of who those people might have been or why any of these suspicions might have existed. So in the case of the McCarthy era, which is just going to be termed a scare with a capital S, <laughs> you can actually find out that from KGB archives, for instance, released in the 90s, opened up in the 90s, that there were communists working in the yeah, U.S. government. Right, right. Yeah, they weren't <laughs> Harry wrong. Harry Dexter White was an actual communist. And there were communists in Hollywood. And they were interested in subverting a lot of things about America through the power of movies. If I'm not case. mistaken, they have a playbook that's come to pass largely. Uh, someone sent me a book once. And I you know when, when you send me a book, I try. Uh, when the print looks like it's not been printed and, and you know, typeset very well, I, I don't try as hard. This was one of those, um, you know, but you find these people who have this historian's bone and they go do a bunch of research. And yeah. the contention was, again, here's this KGB document of 15 point plan to blah, blah, blah. And look, we've done 14 of them. It's like, well... It might not have been the KGB plan, but we have done those 14 things. Look at that. That's quite a thing, you know? Right, uh, right, right. And so, you know, with McCarthy, you find out that, you know, maybe McCarthy was right about some things. Yeah. It's very similar with what happened after the First World War. A. Mitchell Palmer, who graduated from my alma mater, Swarthmore College, when it was a very different place, I think maybe 100 years to the like on the dot before, or before I did. That's uh, cool. A. Mid 
Yeah, it kind of is. A. Mitchell Palmer wanted to deport any foreign-born radicals whom he thought were speaking against America, destroying America. Again, you don't really have to agree with that. But one thing that you can see is that those folks are, in some cases, actually bombing, sending bombs. That is something that they're honest about in the Boardwalk Empire episode. But that is not remembered as terrorism. It's remembered as a scare. That is, when the left doesn't want you to remember the physical impact of something, it will convince you that the problem was your moral panic over it, your overactive imagination, your fear of the hmm. other with a capital O. And so the Palmer raids are kind of the neutral term, but first red scare is much more common if you look these things up on the internet. And that also implicitly connects it to the McCarthy era and the overarching lesson you're supposed to draw is that when the left does violence, we're either, and you know about it, either that's because that violence was good. So it's okay to, you know, shoot that person in the face because he was white. Right, right. Punch Nazis. Yeah. Punch Nazis. Or Ironic, ironically, the guy punching Richard Spencer ended up being one Biden voter punching another Biden voter. So, um, you know, things work out strangely when you know enough history. But either he deserved the violence or the thing to remember is not the violence. The thing to remember is that people were overly concerned and therefore somehow captured the innocent by being worried about that violence. And that's even worse. And that's where the inflation of the term violence is really, really important to the play that they're currently running, which is, okay, yeah, there is concrete violence that the left has committed in American history. But the really important thing is that your speech in dead naming this trans woman, check out the adjective, when you dead name a trans person, that's violence and they feel threatened and therefore the FBI can come talk to you. That's cool. Can I record so, it when they do? <laughs> like I well, want to put it on the podcast for yeah, sure. And, and I think I think your your sense that they have largely been victorious is, is totally true. And this, like the creation of the FBI under a different name comes out of the Palmer raids. That's why I picked it. A. Mitchell Palmer identified District of Columbia native J. Edgar Hoover for his investigative skills in connection with the Palmer raids. What the left has been really good at doing is completely replacing things ideologically while retaining many and developing many of the same structures that were in some cases put into place to ensnare them. So if the FBI is originally put into place in some measure to monitor and persecute domestic communism as such, domestic anarchism as such, and to label it domestic terrorism. Now leftists can use the very same apparatus, very much boosted in the meantime in power and extent for their own ideological purposes. And at this point, domestic communism is not gonna get persecuted on Twitter or in Portland or anywhere. But lots of other things will be labeled domestic terrorism. So I think, honestly, I think of that in a hopeful way, because I think the one of the things that the left has been extremely good at doing over the past 100 years is it, not only in convincing you that the real story all along has been that they were persecuted and people were just going through moral panics and blah, 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 your concerns are overblown, but also in being patient enough to take over the very things that were once used and in some cases created to destroy them. Yeah. Long game for sure. Yeah. yeah. And I think that short-term thinking happens when people feel threatened, right? Like, yeah, panic. obviously like your world, your world window closes down and gets very small when you're very sick, right? All you want to think about is not being sick anymore or when, you know, you're trying to escape a murderous pursuer in a car. Like, I just want to, like, I'm not worried about what I'm going to have for breakfast tomorrow. I just want to stay alive for the next hour. Right. But if they have shrunk your world window through shrinking your attention span to like the past week, then it's much easier to get you to not think in wise long-term ways because you're not really able to, 
And so you're not able to think, all right, what can I do today that would have a positive impact 100 years from now for my team, right? For my family, whatever that is. Yeah. I've been building a small desk. Uh, I'm on my second round of it. Yeah. And what I find most interesting is how little I've designed it outside of my head. Like I've done almost all of it in my head. It's it's happened at times when I I like I'm I'm caught in an interplay where my head's like you should go write this down or I would rather play a video game right now like I have to say no to both those things mm-hmm. and just stare at some wood just stare at it for a while and then over time an idea comes about and there's some growth that takes place yeah there, and that that long game in short form is for me at this point symbolic I'm doing that on purpose to try to show myself uh, what patient workmanship looks like what a prototype and then a secondary is and how you can improve it and to try to um i don't know even in a little bit like pre-modern attempt uh attempt to animalistically experience it you know i'm still using power tools but the idea idea again is is to be primal and have something to stand on i'll beat my little desk now you tell me i'm crazy i'll stand right here but i know this thing i made it and somehow somehow adam that's more information value to me than a lot of the rest of what we said today. Oh, in fact, or I'll flip it the other way, because of everything we said today, that's why I'm building a desk. Mm-hmm. That's actually yeah. what I'm doing right now. Yeah. Yeah. I think because what you can see if you look at the long game is that what gets remembered is what proves useful to the future, is <laughs> what proves helpful to the future, is what gives the future and also the present any kind of wisdom. So if you don't remember, for instance, that there was... There was a kind of uh, boomer Bernie bro who tried to murder uh, Republicans in 2017. Dude, on the field, right? Yeah, and almost succeeded in the case of Steve Scalise, a congressman from Louisiana, I think. If you don't remember that, then when the Biden administration uses the term domestic terrorism, you're not going to think of that as at all a self-accusation. (laughs) which maybe you should, Mm -hmm. but you won't. And of course, they're not going to be going after, you know, kind of enraged Bernie bros. But the long-term use of what we are talking about here is to open up for you possibilities of thinking, not just about 100 years from now, but even just a year or 10 years from now. And I, I want to bring in kind of our last example. I don't want to go all the way down to the cusp of the 80s where I, sure, I thought we'd stop sure. today. But I want to bring in an example of something that shocked me the first time I sure. heard it. Can I hover and, on this other point first? That yeah, we were go just ahead. on there about. Yeah. So the, the goal, again, in my little desk project is to run a, a lab on thinking about long-term thinking without reliance on anything except me. Mm-hmm. And and asking, you know, can I plan and bring to to pass something slowly and on purpose and with care? And so that's what I would again advocate, whatever that means for you, just to find a way to think about long term thinking and to do so in a way that becomes a project of some kind that isn't 100 years away, but yeah. at least can be emblematic yeah. for you that you want to start thinking about 100 years from now. You want to start thinking about 200 years from now. That's the kind of family you want to be part of. Um, And then, you know, however that plays out, but it's thinking about long-term thinking. Um, But okay, so change our direction here. Well, because I I think that that something something that doesn't get passed along with a knowledge of the amazing liberatory struggles of the left throughout American history is the knowledge of how much discipline and self-denial go into being revolutionary. They have accomplished enormous changes in America. I mean, a hundred years ago, even in the 1950s, Billy Graham could have a multi-day evangelistic crusade in Manhattan and tons of people would show up. I mean, it was a completely different world, right? So if they can change America that much in a relatively quick amount of time, something that maybe doesn't get remembered is how much sacrifice that requires from the person who is seeking that change. So if you are out of cultural power at this point, then the thing to do is not to just like lament that, but you have to develop on your own personal level a capacity for discipline and self-denial that is requisite for building. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is something that the left very often 
actually inspires because they're not calling you to, and this is, I mean, I obviously I disagree with them ideologically, but I think they're usually better than the right in not appealing to some sort of very materialistic base self-interest. Well, if you elect us, you know, we'll cut taxes. Okay. I mean, that's something. And it inspires people who have like an ideological opposition to taxation full stop, but it doesn't inspire most human beings. The left, even when it's wrong, is generally in practice less materialistic. Right. In what they're calling well, it's for. because it's humanitarianism. We've talked about this before, uh, you and I once, and then uh, Bombaro and I did it on my other show. Uh, it's humanitarianism. They they are pitching a better world. That is their religious goal. And the Republican, at least, uh, you know, rhino Republican, I think, uh, religious goal is, you know, better tax benefits and some good trade payoffs. And, uh, you know, the market will do better. And it's yeah. just not quite got the same appeal. It doesn't it doesn't have the same appeal. And I think that the the only the only two places in which the right has been at all politically successful in the past forty years, which I would which I would rank as gun legislation and abortion legislation in some manner, and also the public discussion surrounding abortion, is because the right has found visceral human things to talk about in the case of uh, self defense and murder, mm-hmm. right? And and everything else is highly abstract. It is why I think if you're on the right, you want to think about how you talk about things like masks because, and it's why we've been talking about nature, because I think that something that the left has done well is getting people to sacrifice for things that are somewhat abstract, Mm -hmm. but have some sort of deep visceral emotional appeal. And this is why the final example from today is Puerto Rican independence about which generally nobody knows anything. Mm. But if you go into whether you're storming it or not, or they let you in on a guided tour or not, if you go into the U.S. House of Representatives, there are bullet holes in the ceiling. Mm-hmm. And they are from a shooting that occurred that wounded, I don't think it killed any congressman, but wounded multiple congressmen in 1954. 54? 54. Wow. There was also violence throughout the 60s into the 70s, including bombings and bank robberies down as as late as the early 1980s in the case of Puerto Rican independence terrorists, bank robberies in order to secure funding for the Puerto Rican nationalist movement. So this is is the idea that Puerto Rico needs to fully, the word they're going to use is generally decolonize and become independent of the United States. The reason uh... that's... Was, yeah. Sorry, keep, keep, going, keep going. Keep going. The reason that's probably not going to happen politically is because it's not really in anyone's political interest, any elite's political interest for Puerto Rico to kind of go it alone. It's it's highly. Well, dependent. I was wondering how that was going to work out for the Harris family. W- weren't they the Puerto Rican background? Wasn't it Kamala Harris? Wasn't was it Puerto Rico though? She's from. They have a connection point in the in the Mediterranean. I thought in their family history. I think it's Caribbean. Yeah, but I don't sorry, think it's Puerto Rican. Yeah, I meant to say Caribbean. It wasn't Puerto Rico? No, I think okay. AOC might be Puerto Rican. Oh, interesting. I think you're right about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But Puerto Rican independence has never been has has never been politically advantageous to either native elites or right. mainland elites. Right, right, right. Right. So it, it it's sort of a it, it 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 was it was sort of a lost cause. It was certainly a lost cause to commit political violence in nineteen fifty-four. What what I'm before keep going, but okay. It was a lost cause to decolonize a, a a subjected people who had had everything stripped from them and do not generally run their own island. That, that's well, the lost cause, right? Just, no, just the, to put it in context, like, like, isn't this the kind of thing we should be behind if you're in the left? Like the, the, the loosing of these bonds? No, because I think on a material level, and this is why, you know, the federal... Even, even Bernie is willing to postpone the implementation of a $15 federal... Uh, minimum wage. The reason for that is because materially, it's not as if, even if you believe every single thing that Black Lives Matter has ever claimed about American Blacks, or you believe what Puerto Rican independence uh, militants say about the benefits of Puerto Rican independence, American Blacks receive enormous amounts of economic largesse from belonging to the American polity. It's, It's why Black nationalists or Black separatists even when they got some amount of political traction in the 60s and 70s, never picked up any kind of 
intense political traction on the left in any kind of lasting effective way. And the reason is because actual exit from what is denounced as a white supremacist state would entail enormous material suffering. I see. Right, right, right. So they're not going to do it, even though their ideology would tell you that they well, would. The militants will do it. The people who are willing to shoot congressmen will do it. Right. But large groups of people and political elites from either American blacks or among Puerto Ricans, or I actually think this is a problem now for whites who used to be or remain Republicans. Elites will choose material well-being because it's politically stable and because it requires no sacrifice, even if the system generally and logically is harmful to the people group you supposedly represent. Right. So a black congressman will choose a state of life that he's going to weaponize as white supremacist and destructive, but he'll choose to remain in it rather than exiting it. And a Puerto Rican representative that's sort of their equivalent of the Democratic and Republican parties, they have those, is going to choose to remain somehow inside the American polity rather than choose independence because it is materially beneficial. And something that you're looking at anytime you're looking at, quote, domestic terrorism, however it's labeled at any time or place, are people who are willing to put something above material well-being and then to act on it. And I think that is what is kind of destabilizing for everyone about the phenomenon. Because if you are willing to engage in violence for something, you're saying that that something in, uh, for which you're willing to be violent is more valuable than your material well-being because violence endangers everyone's material well-being. If I seek violence, not only am I seeking to, you know, violently take your money from you or something, but I'm also willing to say I'm willing to potentially die in this altercation mm -hmm. for the for the sake of, you know, robbing this bank for Puerto Rican independence. And I picked that cause both because it's sort of obscure and people don't know why there are bullet holes in the house uh, ceiling but also because it's a really good case study and something that didn't work out because it didn't get traction enough traction among its own people group to achieve its goals. They even went through with violence, but unlike radical Republicans in Kansas, they weren't able to transmute that into any kind of long lasting change. And I think if you're thinking about something that you want to build in 10 years or one year or hundred years, you got to think about something that will actually occur rather than sort of hmm. pipe dreams of things that you wish it had worked out that way, or you're waiting for everything to fall apart and then you can build whatever you want. Like that's sort of a video game understanding of life as if I can just exit that session and, and you know, start afresh and build the world the way I wanted it to. If you're actually trying to affect change, I think you have to accept that certain things work in certain ways in the world that you've been placed into, kind of fallen into. And then you work from there. Yeah, you got a lot of good in there. Um, exiting the session is just something worth pondering by itself. Do you want to talk about Gordon Call directly? No, I want to do Gordon Call, I think, to lead off next week, because the stuff that I'm going to be talking about next week is is as we get closer to the present, the, the, you'll see that really even as early as the 1950s, but Gordon Call dies in the early 1980s and into the 90s with Ruby Ridge and, and, and similar events, what you'll see is that rhetoric that today is now sort of on CNN already exists in certain places within the media and governmental ecosystem before. And Gordon Call is a great place to start because he chooses death and he committed violence. And, you know, I'm I, like I said, this week and next week are not about defending or passing judgment. Well, these are all specific... pretty wicked people, right? I mean, yeah, I, yeah. It, it's not, it's not about like, do, do, does Adam Kuhn support Puerto Rican independence or Gordon calls position on the income tax? I was going to bring up the IRA, but I thought they might put a bug in my house after I did it. So I didn't even, didn't even <laughs> go there, but, but it, it's, it's really about like what happened when a person with certain commitments, usually somewhat abstract and difficult to explain to, to large groups of people, 
what happens when that person is willing to take those commitments all the way. Because when you're talking about being put in jail or being martyred or mm. something like that, something passive, right? Because nobody's advocating violence here. But when you're talking about suffering someone's violence, deprivation of your freedom, deprivation of your life, you are talking about a commitment equal to the level of someone who's willing to commit violence. Right. Because the guy who's willing to shoot and the guy who's willing to be shot have chosen something over the basic human sort of slime level, amoeba level good of just existing. Well, I would say between fight or flight, you've chosen fight, even though you're not going to do violence. Correct. You've right. chosen not to flee. Right. And there's something uh, truly, I think, masculine about that. Not that yeah. women can't ever have feelings too, but we're talking about uh, archetypes here too. The one who stands while the other one runs with the kids so that they can get fed, um, the one yeah. who stands is the man. And, and to recapture that positioning is as key as then, I, I love what you said about assessing your actual plans. <laughs> your actual goals, as opposed to all the things you said, I'll do that someday, or I'll get to this someday. <laughs> right. or, oh, that'll yeah, be right. good. One day I'll yeah, do that. Right. And I mean, just look at the books you have that you haven't read. I'm not talking to you, Adam, because we all know you read voraciously, but many of us who do like reading nonetheless have many more books than we've gotten to. And it's, it's this, it's the market, man. And it's, it's propaganda and buy this and sparkly and twinkly. And I have one now and I feel good. And now I get buyer's remorse and we just go through that cycle again and again. Right. But we do that with, more than just what we bring home. <laughs> we right. do that with our ideas. And that's where stepping away, exiting the session and giving it some time to, to ponder, what are my actual goals? I've been doing this this last six months again, and I'm amazed at how many things didn't change and yet how radically the real application is changing. What, right. am, I, what am I actually going to try to do? Am I really going to try to write 40 books just so I can? It sounds, it sounds boring, actually. So I'm going to just... You know, instead, if I write, I write. I don't want to get into that here. But the point being, anyone should and everyone should do this. And you'll find your first principles are the ones you thought you had when you're like 14. And like you just have all these other noises and stories going around about what should be and what you could do. And if only. And some of them are intermixed with fantasy fiction. And some of them are intermixed with sci-fi. And some of them are intermixed with video games. And you will inevitably apply that to your expectations of your life uh, on kind of a broad scale. And uh, stepping back. And really asking, what's the long-term realities? It can free you to actually achieve what you thought you were trying to achieve, but you're spinning your wheels just being entertained instead. And you can you can put your hand down and really do one of them things, <laughs> or five, you know, maybe five. Yeah, right. And I think it's important to kind of tie in where we've been over the past, let's say, month and where we're going, is that a lot of the dynamics we're going to be talking about are going to require for any thinking decent person sacrifice yeah. and lots of it in the future. And you have neither been educated nor conditioned, nor has any of us. You have not been educated nor conditioned for sacrifice, but <laughs> wisdom, including self-reflection and an assessment of what is actually happening and what is actually possible in your lifetime. Wisdom will enable you to sacrifice. Wisdom will push you to sacrifice because you'll learn to place what is unseen above what is seen and you'll learn to place good over comfort and that's going to be for everyone's benefit that's well said a brief history of power with two white guys you know where to find us or you wouldn't have listened this long